Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Okay, it's us, uh, but not just us. Australia faced China's interference and has been far more direct in its response to Beijing. The head of Australia's intelligence service talked of having expelled a, quote, hive of spies from the country. Meanwhile, Australia's former trade minister, immediately after leaving government service, accepted a job working for a Chinese billionaire with ties to the Beijing government, and he was being paid $880,000 a year. That's Australia's former trade minister. On the day after he left government service, he went to work for a Chinese billionaire for $880K a year. Now, my guest has said, I don't have confidence that when it comes to sensitive investigations involving China that could possibly drag in the political elite in this country, the government really has an interest in getting these types of investigations over the line. My guest is Professor Christian Luprecht, professor at Queen's University and the Royal Military College, Eisenhower Fellow at the NATO Defense College in Rome, Monk Senior Fellow in Security and Defense at the MacDonald Gloria Institute. He's regularly called on as an expert witness by parliamentary committees, and he's the author of Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft. Christian, thank you for taking the time. I just spoke with Pierre Polyev. What are your, uh, what are your primary concerns about China's engagements in this country? Uh, that they are longstanding, they are vast and extensive, and that simply by the frenzy that China has stirred up, questioning the integrity of our electoral system, they've achieved their objective in terms of gray zone activities and hybrid warfare below the threshold of armed conflict, which is to sow doubt in the minds of Canadians about the integrity of our democratic institutions, which is why it is so important that there is a full and transparent accounting to ensure that Canadians can have full confidence in our democratic institutions and why it is so important that the government move without delay to ensure there is serious constraints and a deterrent imposed on adversarial state actors looking to influence or meddle in our elections. You've been uh, unequivocal in stating that you don't have confidence in this government, the current government of Canada, the Trudeau government, uh, let me read it again. When it comes to sensitive investigations involving China that could possibly drag in the political elite of this country, you don't have confidence the government really has an interest in getting these types of investigations over the line. Expand on that a little bit for us, please. Right. So this was in the context of RCMP investigations into the uh, Winnipeg Level 4 Microbiology Lab uh, now more than three and a half years in, the charitable interpretation as well that there is no evidence to be able to uh, charge, but in that case we would have dropped the investigation, rather uh, the challenges and dysfunctions within the RCMP and that those may be working in the interests of some of the political elite that would rather not have certain investigations uh, be brought to uh, be, be taken over the line and see prosecutions. So I think the inability to investigate, on the one hand, is essentially emboldens adversarial actors uh, in the activities, the illicit and criminal activities in which they are engaged in Canada. Uh, but if Australia, as you started the introduction to our interview, 
is any indication, there is a significant challenge of elite capture in this country among the political, economic, industrial, social, and cultural elites. And we know that uh, the United uh, Workers' Front of the Communist Party of China is actively engaged in trying to buy sympathies among those elites in countries across the world. And anybody who believes that this is not happening in Canada uh, is either naive or I would have to think is part of the overall ruse that China is trying to feed us. And I think a public inquiry would be quite embarrassing, in particular for the Laurentian elites in Ontario and Quebec, um, I suspect on both sides of the political aisle, but also much more broadly in terms of Canadian society and the sympathies that China has bought itself over the last 30 years, going back to at least the Chrétien government, which of course actively shut down the sidewinder investigations in 1997 into the collaboration between Chinese triads and Chinese intelligence in their activities in Canada. So I hear you saying, and I want to be uh, I want to be correct about this. I hear you saying that uh, China has its own interests in Canada. Clearly, we we know that, but that this government and uh, the Liberal Party or the Liberal government may have an inappropriate. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. An inappropriate interest in protecting China from direct and public. Inquiry. Well, I would say it is hard for us to gauge the motivations by any one individual or any one political party. Andrew Coyne in the recent op-ed speculates on a number of these, and these motivations need not necessarily be treasonous. They can be any number of motivations. But certainly, I do believe that if we look at the track record that China has in other countries, in Australia, that is the track record that is probably the best known and the most apparent, um, but uh, there's no reason to believe that this track record would be uh, different elsewhere. And generally among the G7, it is widely said uh, that Canada has the greatest extent of elite capture of any of the G7 countries, uh, that that track record record would prevail here as well. And look, when we have allegations that uh, candidates of the governing party are allegedly being aided and abetted, uh, by uh, not just foreign influence, but actively uh, by busing in people allegedly to writing associations, by providing financing to uh, candidates uh, when CSIS has on previous occasions by name called out um, uh, provincial politicians uh, in this country uh, that this would, and, and, and now that we have memos also in public, uh, that go back to warnings from the Privy Council office to the Prime Minister dating back to at least 2017 and the inaction by the government, you would have to wonder why is it that people are so concerned about taking concrete action. Um, I, I, my hypothesis is that they're a little bit concerned about what we would be finding if we would actually start to investigate uh, either criminally or through a judicial inquiry. Yeah, I was wondering in my conversation with Mr. Polyev just how objective the search for the rapporteur is going to be if the rapporteur has the um, the influence to call for a public inquiry. And if the rapporteur were to do that, Mr. Trudeau has said he would likely follow that advice. So if Mr. Trudeau doesn't want a public inquiry, how objective is the search for the rapporteur going to be? 
Well, I think what the government is trying to do is change the channel, right? They're trying to kick the can down the road yeah. in the hope that sort of all the TV here turn, uh, dies down and that they can get the budget over the line. Of course, this is a critical time for any government um, uh, because the, the uh, budgets are associated with confidence votes. And so the government is clearly doesn't have, as a minority government, uh, would prefer this not becoming the sole uh, uh, issue here, part of the confidence discussion um, uh, over the federal budget that the government is looking to deliver. I think there's also a sense that uh, this whole conversation is not really the uh, policy priority of this current government. And so charitably, one might say that uh, the government is concerned that this might be distracting from what it is looking to get done. But look, uh, I, I think it's, it's, it's reasonably straightforward that I think China poses an existential threat to the Canadian way of life. Uh, and that Chinese espionage interference in Canada poses the single greatest threat to the Canadian way of life uh, as we know it. And so I'm surprised that, you know, that I, uh, as I've said on the show before, the first and fundamental and most important obligation any government has to its citizens is their safety and security. Yes. And so when that is being called into question, then uh, I think government is not following through of its most fundamental obligation it has towards its citizens in any state in this world. Yesterday, at the annual conference of Defense Associations Institute in Ottawa, Canada's former vice chief of the defense staff and commander of the Royal Canadian Navy, Vice Admiral Mark Norman, warned, and I'm quoting here, we are not taking defense and security seriously in this country, and our way of life is in jeopardy as a result. And quote, Admiral Norman's going to be joining me in just over an hour's time to speak about this. But this is exactly what you're saying and what you've been saying. And in your book, Intelligence as Democratic Statecraft, you make the case that intelligence agencies have a tremendous role to play. Are intelligence agencies in this country receiving the appropriate support from the federal government? And are intelligence agencies in this country doing what they need to be doing Um Christian, because I, I have to ask, how does some of the information that got out, the top secret documents that got out of CSIS, how did they get out of there? So are the agencies receiving the support they re they require and deserve, and are they doing the job they need to be doing? Well, I think as in any democracy, the intelligence agencies seem to be able to identify the challenges and seem to be able to do so with considerable accuracy. But as is often the case in democracies, getting democratic politicians to then follow up on that intelligence and taking political decisions, uh, that can be much more controversial. The challenge we have in Canada is we've always been very homeopathic in how we resource our national security and intelligence and defense establishment for that matter. And if you look at this strategically from the perspective of a hostile state actor, if you're having trouble infiltrating the United States because of its large intelligence and national security community, its fairly robust legislation, look, What's the second best option here? The United States fears the continent and has arguably the closest security relationship in the world with Canada. So if you can influence Canada, Canadian politicians, the Canadian economy, as we, for instance, saw with Hydro-Quebec and uh, the recent uh, Chinese mole uh, that was uh, taken into custody there by RCMP, Canada is a, good, uh, is, is a pretty good second best target. And the problem is we are simply not postured neither in terms of resources nor in terms of legislation, and certainly, as we see here, not in terms of political will. Christian, so if we can pull all this together, China as an existential threat to this country, Australia facing China's threat and how Australia responded, and then 
if we can somehow bring the Katie Telford appearing before the parliamentary committee's issue into the answer as well, that'd be great. Sure. So let's look at the objective here. So the Communist Party of China, something called the United Front Work Department. The United Front Work Department is active in countries across the world, and it has a couple of key mandates. One is to suppress protests against China, um, including, for instance, against Tibetans on Canadian university campuses. And the other is to get ethnic Chinese under its influence elected to democratic legislatures in Western countries. Does this sound familiar, perhaps, to any of the listeners? Now, you don't have to take it from me. In a February 2022 federal court ruling, it found that the United Front Work Department oversees Chinese Affairs Office engages in covert and surreptitious intelligence gathering. Now, look at a PCO memo uh, to the Prime Minister that warned that the United Front Work Department's extensive network of quasi-official and local community and interest groups allow it to obfuscate communication and the flow of funds between Canadian targets and Chinese officials. Um, China has the largest diplomatic service in this country in terms of representatives. This is somewhat curious, given that we have relatively modest relations with China. What do we think that all these diplomats are doing? It is surprising to me that the Minister of Foreign Affairs denies one visa to one Chinese diplomat who apparently is misrepresenting themselves. Well, what, who do you think is doing all this work? CSIS has explicitly called out a host of Chinese diplomats. Uh, across this country. And yet it seems that the government uh, is not prepared to, to take action here. Look at Australia. Australia, when it realized, the, especially during the year when I was living there about five years ago, this became front page news. It completely revamped its national security community during that time. It has a five-year review of its national security intelligence community. Um, it has a domestic as well as a foreign intelligence service. Canada has never had a foreign collection service. We only have a foreign signals service. That means essentially when we try to run these investigations, we are blind on one eye because we see the domestic part, but CSIS is very limited in its international activities. Um, and uh, Australia has taken the hard measures that have been on the table and recommended to this prime minister by the very committee that he has now tasked again to look at this issue, the National Security Intelligence Committee of Parliamentarians, that reports directly to him, which already in 2019 issued a report providing a whole series of observations about what is going on with regards to election interference in this country and a series of recommendations that appears it have, have not been actioned uh, by the government. And so you have to wonder, perhaps the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff might have some answers as to why it is that uh, the office has had all this information that has an action it. But I would think that perhaps the reason that governments don't usually want their chiefs of staff to testify is become because of something called plausible deniability. That is to say, we don't necessarily always tell the prime minister everything so that he can say in earnest before the public, when something becomes critical and serious, oh, actually, I didn't know and nobody told me. But of course, there are people in the prime minister's entourage who know. And uh, one has to wonder, given that... Uh, how insistent the party is on not having the chief of staff testify, whether the chief of staff has some information uh, that could perhaps be quite injurious to the government or to the country. Yeah, and as you've pointed out before on this program, if you testify before a parliamentary committee, that's very similar to testifying before a court. If you are found to not tell the truth, there are perjury consequences. 
Well, and I mean, the government is in a situation that could ostensibly be quite serious. I mean, look, I mean, on the face of it, the allegations are that the government knowingly uh, uh, knowingly was willing to tolerate the fact that a hostile foreign power was aiding and abetting its own candidates, right. possibly its own party and its own campaign. Yep. I would have to think that is a pretty serious allegation. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 